Welcome to The Dish, the show that uncovers the stories behind the world's most famous dishes. We are your hosts, Tomo and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us and expert guests for tasty facts, foodie secrets and more. In this episode... The cultural history of Cuban cuisine. Cuba's national dish. It's not a Cuban sandwich. So what is it? And why is it called old clothes? Plus, a pre-Hispanic ancient Cuban dish. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of The Dish. Hope you're hungry. Yes, in this episode, we're talking about what to eat in Cuba, which we've also done in another episode because we talked about Cuban sandwiches. But should you eat Cuban sandwiches in Cuba or is that one of the worst places to eat them? You're going to have to listen to that episode to find out. Uh, But in this episode, we're going to talk about a few of our other favorite Cuban dishes that you can definitely get in Cuba quite easily. And we're going to talk about the cultural history of Cuba as well. Yep, for sure. There's uh, certainly a lot that we didn't know going into Cuba, and I'm sure that a lot of you out there are probably interested to learn a little bit about this little island in the Caribbean. Things are a little bit different than Cuban culture in the USA, that is for sure. I'm sure everyone realizes political situation and all that is quite crazy, and getting in and out of the country for Americans has been very difficult recently. But we're not going to get into heavy politics in this episode. We considered doing that when we first recorded it, and then we decided we're going to keep it to talking about the food, because talking about the food is what we do best. Exactly. Exactly. We want to keep it lighthearted. And if you want to go and hear about the history of the communist regime in Cuba, then that's the current state of the communist regime in Cuba. uh, That's for a different podcast. Definitely. And for a different show. Definitely not our show. Okay. So remember, you're listening to The Dish. And if you love this show, or if you haven't listened to it yet and you decide you love it after listening to it, which we hope you do. Of course you do. Of course, then please do subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen. And most importantly, tell other people about it. If you like it and you have friends that you think would also like it, then get them onto the show. Not onto the show, but onto listening to it. (laughs) Yep. Get them listening to it every morning on their commute. All right, let's get on with this episode and start talking Cuban cuisine. Well, in a very quick summary, Cuban cuisine is a combination of Native American Uh, sort of native Caribbean American food and Latin American food. Also, the original Native Americans on Cuba, the Taino people, which we'll be talking about shortly, and Afro and Afro-Caribbean food from the slave trade that brought Africans across to the Caribbean. Of course, a lot of Spanish influence because Cuba was originally conquered by Spain. We're going into that as well. And also some French influence And, you know, stuff from Mexico and other regions have come in as well. It's not necessarily the core of the cuisine, but it has definitely been an influence. Now I'm going to have a sip of wine, because that's how we do it here. (laughs) So, yeah, before we get into some specific dishes, let's crack into the actual history, a little bit of history of Cuba and where the food may have come from originally. The earliest known human inhabitants of Cuba were the Taino people. There is a controversial second group as well that I'll talk about shortly. But even though Cuba is only 200 kilometers off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, 
those distances were still too great for people to just grab a boat and go across in those days. And archaeologists- Even these days. Even these days. My brother's cruise ship, my brother works on a cruise ship at the moment, and they had to stop and pick up a boatload of like 14 Cubans trying to get anywhere on this boat. And they had broke the boat and they needed to be rescued. And yeah, so even today, it's not easy waters to be uh, just- you know, boating across. Uh, it's not easy waters at all. Like when you, you're trying to go 200 kilometers and uh, yeah, another thing about people going to Florida, a little bit closer than the Yucatan, but only just. But archaeologists reckon the closest, and when you look at a map, it does seem that way, is to actually come through Venezuela to Trinidad and then all the way along the island chain. So all the way through the different Antilles islands through to Puerto Rico, Haiti, or hi, Haiti, 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 or Haiti. I don't know what people choose there. The thing okay, we're going to go with Haiti. I think it's Haiti. I don't know. We don't know. I've been there once. I don't know how to say it. So yeah, all the way through the island chain from Puerto Rico to Haiti, and then from Haiti to Cuba is a very short jump. So that's a much easier one. If you've already made it from Trinidad into that island chain, then you're there. You're basically on your way. So it was just small hops rather than the larger jumps of coming from the Yucatan Peninsula or coming from Florida, which is also quite a distance. So the Taino people lived off the land, of course. This was way before any high technology had reached the area. And they actually arrived, though, with knowledge of agriculture, which probably came from the fact that they had moved through the Americas. They'd moved through South America. They're going to be in some way descended from all of the different races that were part of populating that area of the world. One of the primary crops that they had, they'd actually semi-agriculturalized the yucca and sweet potato. So those all roots that they could use, starchy roots. And it's still very common in Cuban cuisine today. Yeah. Actually, I have to say I was never a big fan of yucca until we went to Cuba. And I was like, oh, they actually know what to do with this crap. Because before it was just crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was food. <laughs> well, I never enjoyed it. It was horrible. Sweet Remember potato those yucca fries yucca. we had at that place in Mexico one time? And we were like, just use potato. Yeah. <laughs> but then I actually had yucca in, in Cuba and I actually very much enjoyed it. We'll be talking a little bit more about that later on as to why exactly they've improved yucca. And at the time the Taino people were running the show, I don't think it would have been as good as it is now. <laughs> but still, there were no large animals in the Caribbean islands at all before European colonization. It was just like turkeys, wasn't it? I'm not sure that they were even eating turkeys. That was a like a American mainland. Oh, so we're like early, early days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even up until the point where Europeans turned up, uh, Columbus, etc., 1492, 1493 that sort of time, they didn't have those sorts of animals because uh, I guess turkeys can't really fly. Or swim. Or swim. So they were not like Yeah, migrating. someone would have to pick them up and take them there. Yeah, so unless these guys took them with them, yeah. it wasn't happening. Actually, what they were eating in terms of meats was iguanas and other lizards. Oh, that rodents. makes sense. Yeah, mm. yeah, the different lizards that had made it to the island. Because iguanas can swim. Ah, but maybe not 200 kilometers. But maybe they jumped on a coconut. Is it iguanas that can swim or is it goannas? Maybe it's goannas. But some lizards can swim, I guess. Maybe it's the Australian in me coming out going, lizards can swim. Yeah, I think some lizards can swim. I don't know if iguanas can swim. Um, Tweet us at Food Fun Travel. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to look that up right now. Yep, lizards, rodents, earthworms, yummy, 
and small birds, obviously different birds that did migrate or just live there permanently, they actually made there. These specific proteins are not so common in modern Cuban cooking, but they would definitely have been part of the meat side of the lifestyle in pre-colonization days. Of course, there was also lots of seafood and the Taino people, I mean, they managed to make it from Venezuela through all these different islands on boats. So not surprisingly, they were quite good at catching anything seafood related. Mm -hmm. Definitely they'd had fish. They're eating turtles. Sad face. And also collecting mussels and oysters from the local mangroves. Also, they had corn, but unlike the rest of Central and Latin America, they were not making tortillas. They just had corn on the cob. They just grill it up and eat it. Ah. This was not a tortilla nation. Other typical fruit and veg included things you'd expect from the region like squash, beans, peppers, bell peppers and chili peppers, peanuts and pineapples. I'm sure there were coconuts as well. Now, on the very western tip of Cuba, so far west of Havana, there is a very small amount of archaeological evidence that suggests there was another race of people that may have got there before the Taino people. They were called the Guanajatabe, and their ancestry to this day still has not been properly traced, which is why it's a little bit controversial. They probably were there. There were like sightings of them and discussions with the Taino people about them when the original European colonization people turned up. So there were another race living there that the Taino did not consider part of them. Could they be lizard people? They could be. Mm. Maybe they're guanas. Ah. Although most people won't even know what a guana is because it's super Australian. It's a big lizard. A big lizard. It swam all the way to Cuba but didn't stop anywhere else. I don't think they were lizard people. From what I can understand, there is a possibility, unproven, that perhaps they actually did come through Florida, through the Bahamas, and down to Cuba whereas the Taino people came through Latin America. Oh, so up. they're more likely Inuits. I, more I Inuit style? The or? problem is that there's really no guaranteed evidence. There's just some very small archaeological evidence that suggests that perhaps in Florida, a race with a very similar DNA was also there. Okay. At a time around the same time, which could suggest they came that way instead. Interesting. But because the... Taino people were so much more sophisticated in terms of agriculture and culture in general. The others be dead. The other guys, they are just like, yeah, they're like hunter-gatherers who live in caves. They actually, according to one report, they told Europeans who arrived, don't even bother talking to them. They just live in caves. They're pointless. Like, I mean, it, I'm paraphrasing somewhat, <laughs> <laughs> but that was the general gist of the source that, yeah, the Taino people like, oh, forget about them. So it's like Neanderthals and modern humans in Europe. Yeah. They just went like, yeah, those guys they were not are friends. sort of, yeah, we're not getting involved with them. We let them be. They basically go out and grab some mussels off the beach and then they go and sit in their cave and eat them and that's about it. So that was it. That was who was there in 1492 and 1493, actually, specifically. This is when the Spanish arrived. Uh, they arrived to the Bahamas in 1492 which is also, by that point, uh, a land of the Taino people. So if these other guys had come down from Florida, the Taino people had done so well that they had spread into Bahamas as well, mm. but not necessarily all the way to Florida, I don't think, at that point. But, yeah, so Columbus's original voyage, they landed in the Bahamas. That was the first place they landed. Well, you have to say, these people didn't have the modern, at that time, technologies that Columbus had. And even Columbus no. turned up and went, where, where was it that he thought he was? India. Yeah. And Indonesia. Yeah. <laughs> 
exactly. <laughs> so if Columbus doesn't have a freaking clue where he is, I don't know how these people are going to really have a clue. What, but, you know, they did quite well to, to spread out as they did. Oh, I think they did very well. But, yeah, there's no surprise they didn't make it to Florida because they just went in a direction, landed somewhere and went, yay! This will do. Let's stay here for about 300 years and raise a family and then see what we want to do next. Exactly. When we run out of space for our in-laws, then we'll send them off to the next island. That was pretty much the system back then. Yep. Took him a while to get there. So Uncle John was a little bit too touchy-feely for everyone, so he got sent <laughs> on to another island. Oh, dark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but possibly true, so who knows. Actually, Columbus didn't arrive to Cuba on his first 1492 voyage. He came back on his second voyage. And on his second voyage, he actually brought pigs with him. And that is why... And everyone rejoiced. Everyone was like, we've been eating lizard for how long? And now we've got pigs? Yeah. This is amazing. So, yeah, 1493 on his second voyage back, he brought eight pigs. And obviously, they had no predators or anything because it was all small animals on these islands. The pigs went crazy. So that was the first place in the Americas that had pigs in the whole of, well, that had the uh, domesticated pig. I've read some sources about some weird oh, wild, like wild pigs boars, yeah. that may have existed in other places, but the modern sort of pig that we have, the first time it was introduced to the Americas was 1493 by Columbus and into Cuba. So Cuba be pork country. Yeah. And it's still is And from today. there, it actually went down into Mexico and Central America and stuff like that. Yes. So yeah, Cuba really is like the... The starting point of pork in that region. Mm, Porktastic. So, yeah, it did move into Mexico sort of later in about 20 years after that. But Cuba was the first place where they just started raising some pigs. So not surprisingly, Spain has had one of the greatest culinary influences on Cuba because it was a Spanish colony for so, so long. I mean, they still speak Spanish. It's very much Spanish. There's been lots of different waves of immigration since the initial arrival of the pigs. And a few other people that got left behind with the pigs. Uh, there have been many, many, many more Spanish movements to Cuba. And although it did change hands a little bit, it has been predominantly Spanish until, of course, it became independent. So it was British for a while, it wasn't was it? It was British for like five years. Yeah. And then they sold it off to get Florida. Yeah. Which, which is didn't crazy. work out. No, that it didn't well. work out for anybody. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with food. People make bad decisions in life. Especially the British. (laughs) Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, topical stuff. So, uh, Spain's effect on the cuisine uh, has definitely been very important, but it's also the blending with African, Caribbean, and the local ingredients that were available that has created sort of a Cuban Cuban versions of different dishes that came from other places. You know, they put their own stamp on everything even though perhaps it was not it was not Taino cuisine. The original people who lived there, there's not a lot of that going on. Uh, in fact, most of those guys died out very quickly once. Isn't the, that because Yuka's toxic? No, it's because of <laughs> smallpox. Oh. Just like a lot of other places. Good old Spanish bringing yeah, their smallpox. Turned up, infected everybody, most of them died. So, yeah, same sort of problem. So we'll be experiencing some of these influences and how and when they landed as we go through some of the most important dishes. Just before we do that, one of the very important staples in Cuba today that I want to mention is, of course, rice and beans. Which sounds so basic, but it's so awesome. It's wonderful. I love rice and beans. I don't think I ever got tired of eating rice and beans in Central or South America. 
And I feel like Cuba actually does a really good version of rice and beans. Definitely, I agree. It is served as a side with pretty much every meal. And of course, for some poorer households, it could actually make up the majority of their regular diet because it's it's what they get. We'll be talking a bit more about that later in the episode. One point I wanted to make is that rice did not arrive to Latin America at all until the 1520s. There was no rice. So no, firstly, it would have come from Asia, right? Yeah, it came from Asia. But of course, Europe already had it. The yeah. Venetians were making risotto however many, 1,200 years ago or more. But there was no rice growing culture in that region at all. But of course, the climate led to it being an ideal crop to be a, a subsistence crop and a, something that would keep the masses fed. Rice is such a wonderfully versatile dish. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever do the history of rice because that's just like, Four score. Or it would be like the Four score of, and 20 millennia 20 ago. It would be like the beginning of a Star Wars movie. <laughs> you know, it'll just go on forever. Anyway, rice is good. Yeah, rice is good, but they didn't have it in Latin America. It was not a thing. It's crazy because it's such a thing now. Corn was the thing. So they had beans, but the whole rice and beans has been this mixture of, yeah, the rice coming in and them already having beans, and it just became the main food. Now, the two names that you're going to find in Cuba for rice and beans are Moros e Cristianos, which actually means the Moors and the Christians. Oh. So it, it's not really anything to do with beans. It's, I guess it's a colloquialism. I haven't Telling found a reason Telling of a tale? For it. Is it, would it be a story? I, I don't know. Because it's like Thanksgiving is like a story thing, isn't it? Right? It's like them mm. giving stuff to the... I really don't know anything about Thanksgiving. Sorry, Americans. No, we'll, we'll do that in another episode with Slash an American Canadians. Because Canadians do Thanksgiving too. Mm. Well... Know. It's one of the names. There's two different names. Also, the other name is Congri. Now, one of the specific differences is supposed to be that Morosi Cristianos is black beans and rice, and Congri is red beans and rice. That's definitely got something to do with racial stories. It's got to. It, it might do. Black and white, red and white. It's, that's yeah. Uh, come on. That yeah, seems- it, I mean, it's possible. I haven't got any uh, specific details on this. But actually, the word congri for beans and rice in some parts of Cuba, that just means beans and rice. It doesn't have anything to do with the color of the beans. So uh, yeah. it just depends on who you meet. One grandmother says they're all called congri. The other one says, this one's not congri. This one is congri. But yeah, we loved it. It's wonderful, salty, umami rice and beans. It's very Very nice. simple and very pleasing. And that's all you really need. Let's talk about some of the most important dishes in Cuban cuisine that have, you know, they've really left their mark and they have a historical story behind them. So the first one is considered to be one of the national dishes or probably the national dish of Cuba. It's ropa vieja. Yes, we definitely went out searching for the best possible ropa vieja that we could find. Tried a few, had a few uh, misses. Had one particular hit that uh, we thoroughly enjoyed, actually. I think yes. we had a couple of decent ones and a couple of bad ones. Yeah, yeah. So it, it wasn't too bad. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the story about these old clothes. Yes, Ropa Vieja does translate directly to mean old clothes. It's Spanish for old clothes, which sounds sort of weird. It's actually a dish of shredded beef and is considered Cuba's national dish by many people. I don't know if by everybody, but most people seem to agree. But like most famous modern Cuban cuisine, it did not really originate in Cuba. Uh, They've got their twist. Sources that I've read do disagree to some extent on the exact origin. Its most direct roots definitely seem to lie in Spain. 
And the easiest trace of how it migrated to Cuba is actually from the Canary Islands. Really? Which is an island group just off the Moroccan coast of Africa, which has been owned by Spain since the 1400s. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. No. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, Spanish influence from anywhere, I guess. Yeah. Well, actually, what happened was the Canary Islands lay claim to the dish having been made there way before it arrived in Cuba. And Ropa Vieja is still widely available in restaurants in the Canary Islands. So what's the etymology of, of the name? Like, where does it all come from? Oh, I'm going to get into that. Oh, okay, I'm jumping There's ahead. There's a story behind the old clothes. So, yeah, definitely a good story. It's believed that because of the very large migration of Spanish people from the Canary Islands to Cuba in the 19th century and early 20th century, that that's the reason why the dish became a Cuban speciality. So, what do you think made them want to pack up and leave the Canary Islands, which is like, Vacation paradise today. Well, that's vacation paradise now, but in the 19th century, there were no vacations. Barely, no, but they would have had rich. nice beaches and stuff going on. But I guess it still would have no been- money. Yeah, it would have been basic island life. But they, they gave up basic island life for basic island life. But basic island life on a tiny island next to Morocco or basic island life on a massive island with natural resources lands. that had been underdeveloped at that point. You know, there's- the same reason that everyone moves. If you're not a criminal like you Australians, then everyone moves <laughs> to these new places because there are new opportunities. If they don't have a great lot in life where they were, then they ship people out. Makes sense. Now, the earliest known documentation of Ropa Vieja in Cuba appeared in a cookbook from 1857 called Nuevo Manuel del Cocinero Cubano e Español. So, the so new the, manual of food. Or new manual of cooking of for cooking, Cuba and Cuba Spain. Cuba and Spain, yeah. Yeah. So, it seems like by 1857, Ropa Vieja definitely established itself and it was being put in these cookbooks. But the cookbook was probably written by someone who was from the Canary Islands. And <laughs> <laughs> just like, this is what we cook. But as you said, why is the name of the dish Old Clothes? Actually, it's just a simple legend. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. But... It suggests that an old man who was very, very poor had absolutely nothing left to cook for his family apart from his old clothes. So he shred them up and cooked them and he prayed for a miracle. And by the time the dish had finished cooking, they had turned from clothes into beef. So an old buck naked man... (laughs) Now, these are his old clothes. He might have current clothes he was wearing whilst making the food. I feel like he's so poor... That he did, this like, is the only clothes. Yeah, this is, this is what I'm feeling. And so he got, you know, he went complete commando. Well, he might have still been in Apparently, his underwear. Apparently, he must have had at least something going on for uh, the all beings to be like, all right, mate, we'll help you out here. Well, I mean, he prayed a lot. And apparently that's normally enough. That's what Christians tell me. So I, I don't know. Maybe yeah. that works. Yeah. So that was it. And of course, the texture of this slow cooked shredded beef does sort of come out a bit like, well, it's like strandy. I mean, let's say it's not a pretty dish. You know, so, I mean. Well, stews aren't normally that pretty. Exactly. So, it's not the most photogenic dish that you're going to get. You're not going to go crazy on Instagram with that one. But it is still very flavorful because it's that slow cooking. Like, they, it, it is that process of cooking so slowly that everything breaks down, even, like, you know, old clothes would break down. <laughs> I still don't feel like old clothes would actually taste good just because you seasoned them with a little garlic. You know, if you're hungry, you're hungry. Who's judging? I, I don't, I'm not sure that clothes are nutritional, but we'll see. We'll see as we go through the rest of this. So the standard Ropa Vieja 
the traditional one that's made in Cuba today especially, is made from the shredded beef, definitely not from old man clothes, and it is made with a sofrito. I'm sorry, I just can't stop envisioning this old guy, like... Naked old man with a beard. Naked old man with this long grey beard. I'm saying, like, who's the... The, the toothy bat is a bad guy. Oh, like Javert in Aladdin in the beginning. And he's like, come, son, come into the cave of wonders. Go in. I can't go in. That's who I'm envi- envisioning. Like old man, not Javert, because that's- That's um, Les Miserables. Uh, I'm thinking more of the juniper bush guy in Monty Python's Life of Brian, who's just like, don't touch my juniper bushes. <laughs> he's already shredded his clothes by that point, and He's just running around going, all i got left is juniper bushes. <laughs> Could be something like that. I mean, I don't really know. I wasn't there at the time. I'm not sure. I don't, yeah, I don't think they make them from old clothes anymore. And they definitely don't use prayers to make food as much as they used to. But shredded beef with a sofrito of onions, garlic, bell peppers, and tomatoes, where, of course, those ingredients slowly break down and you fry them at a low heat until they become translucent and eventually just make into amazing, amazing sauce. Uh, that is the way that it is made today in Cuba. And, of course, the original sofrito, that style, is definitely Mediterranean in origin. So it has come across from the Mediterranean. That doesn't seem like that's something people would have been doing before at all. But tomatoes and bell peppers both come from the Americas. So it's sort of interesting to look at this and see that those ingredients were transported back to Europe around about the 16th century. And they made their way to the Canary Islands where, of course, they would grow perfectly because it's also a very hot island, very far south. And they were then integrated back into that common cooking style of the sofrito. And instead of other versions of sofrito that you'd get in, in Italy or whatever, they were using those ingredients. And then the migrations from the Canary Islands took them back to Cuba. So it's quite a crazy story. A new world ingredients came into Europe and then went straight back with migrations and they started teaching everyone those dishes. And then that became the uh, Cuban national dish today. Mm, interesting. However, the very original Ropa Vieja, or at least a precursor to it, might have existed long before Spain even owned the Canary Islands or people from the Canary Islands went to Cuba. The roots of the dish are very much based around a leftovers-style meal, in fact. Uh, The art of slow-simmering meat to make stock has, of course, existed long into antiquity, probably longer than we can really trace. Oh, yes, forever. And in Spain, it was common to make the puchero, which is a very hearty soup that they would have earlier in the day. Large pieces of meat would be thrown in the water, and they would be boiled for hours and hours. Vegetables would be added into the water to simmer in that very flavorful stock. And then the vegetable soup would be served, maybe with the odd little bit of meat, as the puchero soup. But all of the meat on the bones, after many hours, would be left over. So once the soup had been made, you had all of this very well-cooked meat that was left over that they could shred up and use to make the ropa vieja. So the original sofrito, of course, had been around for a very long time, as we mentioned before, at least since early Venetian times, probably long before that. So they might have used different ingredients rather than using tomatoes and peppers. They could have been using carrots and, well, celery as a traditional ingredient Black in pepper, Italy. of course, for the spice. Black pepper. I mean, this is not a really a spicy dish, so you don't even need a lot of spice. But what they would have used instead of tomatoes would have been wine. That's a very typical yeah. cooking style for this sort of dish. 
So this could definitely have been made before. It had just been a slow simmered beef that came out of the soup that they shredded up and mixed with a sofrito and wine. And yeah, they could use carrots instead of using peppers to add the vegetable sweetness. Yeah, so this dish could have existed long before it made it to Cuba and have actually been an ancient sort of semi-antiquity dish almost. They've just taken it, varied it a bit, gave it a different name and then went, yep. They got new ingredients over the Canary Islands and went, well, hey, we've got these. They grow like crazy. Yeah, I mean, I I think new ingredients makes a new dish for sure. Yeah, when you got weather like that and the tomatoes grow like crazy yeah, and peppers grow like crazy because it's hot all the time because you're in the Canaries, like, yeah, okay, well, what have we got today? Oh, we don't have any celery. <laughs> all right, well, let's use this. What have we got? We've got these pepper things. All right, oh, that's better. That tastes better. That's really good. Yeah, because it is. It's, I, I think it's good. Peppers work really well for sofrito. I like that mm. Latin American version of sofrito. If you're in Cuba, it's commonly made with flank steak because flank steak it has that low-fat content. It's very tough if you try to just grill it it's straight up. It's very cheap. It's cheap, or at least was in the past. Maybe not so much now because it's become more popular. But because of the low-fat content, it does have quite a stringy consistency. It's quite a tough muscle. So it makes those shredded clothes-style texture. You can use pretty much any type of beef, though, really. And as we'll talk about later, with the economic situation in Cuba, people will use whatever they can get. But Flank steak would be the most common sort for a traditional style ropa vieja in Cuba. Unlike the original version from the Canaries, though, which would have been served with potatoes, the Cuban version is, of course, served with rice or rice and beans, as you'd expect. Always choose rice and beans. Rice and beans is better than plain rice, people. Do it. Mm -hmm. Do it every time. Uh, This dish has also become common around a lot of other parts of the Caribbean and even in the Philippines, another ex-Spanish colony. So. That sort of adds more weight to the fact that it was brought by the Spanish for sure, which all the evidence points towards. And if you head to the Canary Islands, you will find that local restaurateurs, if you tell them, why have you got this Cuban dish? They'll go, what do you mean? This is from the Canary Islands. Cuba ripped it off. (laughs) So people are pretty adamant and the evidence seems to suggest it's definitely an old world dish. So Ropa Vieja, along with some other dishes we'll talk about shortly, are part of the Criollo. Criollo, Criollo, or Creole culinary history of the island of Cuba, which is quite hard for me to say. Creole is the word that we use in French and English because it is it's a French word that we've adopted. And the crazy thing is, and it makes this super confusing to try and explain how this culinary history works, is the word sort of means exactly the opposite depending on what island you're on. I have noticed that it does have different meanings depending on where you are in the Caribbean. Yeah, and it's crazy confusing. So let's sort of talk about what it means on Cuba compared to some other places. Um, Creole and Criollo, Criollo, it's really hard to say. C-R-I-O-L-L-O, Criollo or Criollo in Spanish. Or we can say Criollo if we're saying it really wrong. Yeah, I've got no idea. Uh, It seems the two words seem to have blended together, but... What it is, is Creole is obviously the French version, Creole is the Spanish version, and yet the meanings seem to have blended uh, together. So I really had to do a lot of research to figure out what was going on with this, because everything that I read about the food, it just, it got really confusing. I was like, is this African food? Because it's Creole, surely that's African. Like, it's new people who've been brought over as slaves, and they've brought their own food and their own spices, and they've started creating those dishes. But all of the research I did said Criollo in... Cuba 
is not anything to do with African culture. It is to do with Spanish people from Spain who had kids, and their kids, because they were born in Latin America, were criollo. Yeah. And I'm like, this is literally the opposite concept. We're saying this is Europeans who have come over as opposed to Africans who've come over and had kids and become yeah, their culture. It completely does my head in because I had always thought that Creole was obviously the African influence from the, the slave trades in those regions. I don't know. It's, I mean, and it is in Louisiana, as far as I'm aware, 100%. It's to do with the African influence. And in Haiti, or Haiti, which is right next to Cuba, it's literally the island next to Cuba. It's the African mixed with some French culture, but it's the, it's yeah. the African people who came in and then added French to their culture. So, so like, legit. what? If anyone can answer this for us, please tweet us at Food Fun Travel because we are so confused. Well, I do have an answer because this concept is so confusing. There's like an entire chapter in a book about Latin American culture just on this word. Yeah. It's that crazy. So this book's called A Pepper Pot of Cultures, Aspects of Creolization. It describes how Criollo is used to identify different types of people in lots of different Latin American countries, as I've said. In Argentina, Criollo refers to country folk, people who were not raised in the city. So it's not even really anything to do with what their ancestry was. It's just like, oh, those country people, country bumpkins, they're Criollo. In Ecuador, Criollo can refer to native Ecuadorian Indians. So actually not Africans. At all, but people who were living in the Americas before Columbus turned up. Yeah. Uh, so, what? That's pretty much the opposite to Cuba, whereas we said in Cuba, the word originally was to describe someone whose parents are from Spain and they were born there. So, they're first generation Spanish immigrants, basically. Yeah. The book observes that the historical usage of the word criollo has also just changed over time. So, what it was used for 300 years ago is not necessarily the same as it is now, even if it's the same country. So, the, the meaning of the word is different everywhere. The meaning of the word has changed almost everywhere over the last few hundred years. It's just, it's impossible to know what the hell's going on. And of course, now you're at this point, well, there aren't any first generation Spanish immigrants, really. Because even with waves of immigration to Cuba in, in the 19th century and early 20th, well, I think, no, the 19th century was sort of the last block, none of those people are going to be first generation immigrants anymore. Because like three more generations have already turned up since then. They've yeah, all been born. So. Totally. So this word doesn't mean anything anymore. It's really, really confusing. But the word is used to describe a culinary style in Cuba a lot. And of course, it's Creole is used to describe culinary style in Haiti and in Louisiana and everywhere. Yeah. And yet the meaning that it's used for for the culinary style is different in each one of those countries, depending on what the word was used for at the time that it was used. Yay! <laughs> so... There is no, no definitive sense. useful answer to any of this. And anyone who's going to write in and be like, that's not what Creole means. I'm telling you right now, it means something completely different everywhere. So don't worry about sending us hate mail that we're, we've misunderstood what Creole is. Everyone's misunderstood what Creole is. <laughs> it's different everywhere. But what I can say is the original intention of Creole cooking in Cuba was the food that was brought from Spain and cooked by first-generation immigrants using local ingredients, whether those ingredients had already been taken back to Europe and then reused in Cuba, or whether 
they just went, well, this is what we used to cook like back home. Let's integrate that cooking style into Cuban cuisine and create a new Cuban Spanish cuisine, right. which has eventually become Cuban cuisine. So that's cool. So for the purposes of this podcast, this is what it means. That is exactly what it means. And that's all we're talking about. And Ropa Vieja is a perfect example of that dish, uh, that style of cooking is that like the sofrito made with tomatoes and onions and peppers, addition of spices like cumin, maybe chili, but not necessarily. That's like a, a new thing. Um, and it, yeah, that slow cooked sauce, it's rich mm. and delicious. Um, yeah. And there's another really important dish on Cuba. And unlike Ropa Vieja, which definitely has its roots in cuisines of Europe, specifically probably the Canary Islands, this other dish seems to be something I can't find any evidence that it was being made in Europe beforehand, although, of course, the source is familiar. But this is called uh, enchilado, made with seafood, or lobster is the best version, but it could be made with prawns, fish, crab, lots of other different possible seafood proteins. And enchilado has absolutely nothing to do with Mexican enchiladas at all. Okay. Like, this is not related. It has not been formed because of that dish. It's not. Enchilado is very much criollo cooking, original criollo style. In fact, the ingredients that it's made with for the sauce is almost exactly the same as Ropa Vieja, but it's got the seafood style instead of beef. No tortillas involved. This dish is normally served with rice. This has absolutely nothing to do with Mexican food at all. Now, I said the prime version of this that you should definitely try in Cuba that is amazing is the lobster enchilado. I don't know. The lobster just goes so well with that sauce. Slow cooked in that. Yeah. Great. Yeah, and the lobsters in that region are just sensational. You've got to make sure you're there during lobster season because there are very strict regulations on when they fish the lobsters. But Although there seems to be a lot of black market lobster going don't around. Don't eat the black market lobster, you people. Be that. It makes me cranky. Yeah, so you know, try and be there during lobster season. I don't have the exact dates for that on me right now, but uh, you can look that up online. And enchilado has also this cultural significance because it's using some fancy seafood. It's said that Cuban families, you can judge the importance of their dinner guests based on what they serve at dinner when those guests turn up. Mm -hmm. So if you're getting a, a shrimp enchilado, then you're doing pretty well. You're quite an important guest. But if you're getting a lobster enchilado, you're pretty much like visiting royalty. Yeah, they it, love you. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty awesome if you get that. But of course, you can so just go out and buy one. What's the crappest? Like, so if you turned up <laughs> and they served you, like, what's the, the crappest enchilada? just enchilado? beans and rice without enchilada you would get be like... no enchilada. Yeah, like, you're not really welcome feeding <laughs> you because we have to. <laughs> uh, but yeah, as a privileged foreign tourist, you will have the option to find one of the, the expensive restaurants around Old Havana, which are mainly just tourists eating in those. And they quite often have lobster enchilada on the menu. And it's... It's very, very tasty. Mm -hmm. It was one of my favorite dishes for sure. And if you check out our article, foodfuntravel.com slash Cuba podcast, I think you'll find in there we've actually given away one of the places that we thought was great. Not everywhere will have lobster. They may say, if you go to the door and you're like, do you have the lobster on today? Like the towel outside may say, yeah, yeah, sure we have. Because they don't know what's in the kitchen. And well, and because they get a commission for getting people seated. And once you're seated, most people are too polite to just walk out and leave when they find out there's no lobster on the menu. Yeah, that's true. People just want you in the restaurant. And so, unfortunately, the touts really don't care if you get the meal that you want. They don't care about TripAdvisor reviews. They'll just go and tout for someone else. Yeah. So, yeah. If someone says they have lobster, go in, ask the kitchen if they have lobster. And if they say no, don't feel bad about walking out. Yeah, I think that's one of those things, especially when we travel a lot. A lot of people do pressure you to sit down. Sit down. Look at the menu. Sit down. Yeah. Have a seat. Blah, blah, blah. And then when you see, seat 
then when you're seated, you feel awkward if you get up again and leave. Yeah. So we quite often will just be like, can we look at the menu? Just stand there. And they're like, sit, sit. And we're like, no, <laughs> no. We do it all the time. It happened a couple of days ago with us here in, in Portugal at the moment. And I was like, there's two restaurants we want to check out. Let's go to the first one. And literally, we hadn't seen the menu or anything. And the lady's like, oh, you should sit down. And the friends who are with us, who aren't foodies specifically, they instantly just went, of course, we'll sit down. This is great. And I'm like, no, we wanted to check two restaurants. And now you're sitting down. So, and now I'm going to look like a complete douchebag if I'm like, no, don't sit down. Yeah, you feel obligated to. Yeah. So, but when we go into restaurants, we do say we want to see a menu before we actually sit down. Because if if we're after a specific dish and we're only in town for a week, we want to make sure that dish is on and that we're going to get it. And we're not going to just go like, oh, you don't have it. Fine. I'll have something else. Yeah. Because we don't want to do that. We've got a limited amount of time for our taste buds and they want what they want. Yeah. Most other people don't care. It's just us. We're fussy. We're on a mission. Not fussy. We're on a mission. Now, we mentioned yucca right at the top of the episode as being a type of root, also known as cassava, depending on how you want to talk about it. And one of the other criollo style sauces that is very popular in Cuba, that's based around original Spanish tradition, is the mojo. Not to be confused with the mojito. No, mojo is a sauce. Mojo is a sauce, a citrus garlic sauce, commonly made with Seville oranges, which are sour, or with lime, mixed with garlic, oil, salt, and pepper. And uh, traditionally with oregano, although that's not necessarily as common in Cuba as it would be if you were making this in Spain. So the sauce may be used to marinate meat like pork. Another common way of using it is you might find it added to vegetables as a finishing sauce, which is where the yucca comes in. So people were eating boiled yucca before the Europeans arrived. But then how would you use that dish and make it taste a little better? You throw over some of this mojo sauce and it gives it that sort of salty, garlicky, sour kick. So and they would good. have been doing it with the lime because they wouldn't have got the oranges until the Spanish the came Seville over. The Seville oranges came from Europe. And actually, I believe that all citrus fruit came from Europe. Yes. So actually, there would not even have been any limes. Ah. Lemons and limes came through North Africa into Europe, coming from Southeast Asia. The locals would not have had any citrus fruit. This is definitely a new way of making boiled root vegetables taste better by throwing some delicious Spanish style sauce on top. So they were just eating some old crap yucca until that citrus turned up. I don't think the Taino people had a massive culinary history. (laughs) They were eating some grilled lizard with some boiled yucca on the side. Yeah. It was food to live by, not food to excel by. Sustenance all the way. It totally was. So yeah, that's another influence of the Criollo. Okay, so although the the Creole cooking, the Criollo cooking is sort of the main thing that you're going to see on Cuba. It's some of the the most famous dishes that you're going to see on every menu. There is actually a super ancient pre-Hispanic dish that you can still find that is still quite popular on Cuba. And it's called achiaco or maybe achiaco. I'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation, but it is, it's the everything stew. Every country's got an everything stew where they just throw everything they happen to have that day into a pot. You're not really sure what you're going to get. It's going to be seasonal. It's going to be fresh and local. Or they're going to be using up yesterday's stuff and throwing it in a pot. You know, whatever they've got to use up, it just goes in. It's one of the oldest traditional Cuban dishes, which existed before colonization. And it's believed that the name Achiaco probably comes from the Taino word Aches, which means a little heat. Because this dish is supposed to have some chilies in it. Uh. 
So, yeah. So, is it a vegetable dish or like what is the main? Because obviously if it's pre-Hispanic, they wouldn't have had pork or anything. They would not have had pork. So, as we talked about at the start of the episode, things like iguana and turtle and, yes, seafood, mussels, those sorts of things could have gone in. But the main stuff that would have been like the subsistence food without the protein part would have been just whole corn on the cobs Mm -hmm. or chopped corn on the cobs, yucca, sweet potato, squash, and whatever random vegetables they could find, which probably involves peppers and, of course, chilies. So, yeah, the protein will just be like whatever they caught that day, which could be be fish, but uh, mainly these days it's definitely not fish. So what happened was when the Spanish arrived, they recognized this dish as being very similar to some of the classic Spanish dishes like puchero, where they literally just throw everything in a pot with some meat. And so over time, they would have replaced those random game meats like iguana and turtle with beef, pork and chicken. And it's a lot more common today that you'll find it with that sort of meat in instead of seafood. Become the norm. Yeah. But- they kept the local vegetables. So you'll still normally find it with chunky bits of corn in it, maybe some yucca, a sweet potato, and that sort of thing. So it has changed. They're more likely to put onions and garlic and things in it now as well. But it is, it's a traditional dish. Mm. It's probably the most traditional dish you're going to find on Cuba because almost everything else, apart from just having your yucca with some sour orange on, which also they wouldn't have had sour orange before. No. So, yeah. It's one of the few dishes that we can say is mostly pre-Hispanic. So definitely worth tracking down and giving it a try. Yeah, and it's quite easy to find. We saw it on a lot of menus. But of course, do head to our article, foodfuntravel.com slash Cuba podcast. There's a few restaurant suggestions in there as well. Well, that's it for our What to Eat in Cuba episode. We covered four or five different dishes. And of course, Cuban sandwich, if you want to know more about that and why it might not really be much of a Cuba dish. <laughs> Maybe it's more of a Cuban American dish. We talk about that in the Cuban Sandwich podcast, season two, episode five. So do go back and listen to that. Coming up next in our next couple of shows, we're going to go over two of the most famous cocktails. So rather than mm. a food dish, we'll be doing a liquid dish. Because it is really hot in Cuba and there's nothing you want more than after like a day of sightseeing or even maybe partway through your day or maybe to start your day. I don't know, whatever you're vibe is cocktails it's all about cocktails yeah over the next two episodes we'll be talking about the mojito and the daiquiri and i was super surprised when i started researching these just how much like story there is Mm. because i mean let's face it they've got like four ingredients they're not these super complicated cocktails and yet there's loads of stories associated with them so super interesting researching them and Check out those next. They might already be out because I don't know when you listen to this. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe those episodes are already out so you can hear a little bit more about Cuba. And that's going to complete our Cuba series for this season. We've got four different episodes. So it's, it's been a big Cuba, Cuba hit yeah. in season two. But, uh, you know, definitely a destination that a lot of people are getting more and more interested in visiting and so want to know information about what to expect. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, as a final sum up, it's important to remember that things are very different in Cuba than if you, say, went to Little Havana in Florida. Although the Cuban culture may be, may be represented similarly, I, like the food availability, the, the options, like we talk about all these foods, but you might easily go to a restaurant and they're not available. Yeah. I mean, mojitos and daiquiris are going to be available. Don't worry, guys, you're still going to be able you to drink. You can still drink. There's always alcohol, there's always rum in Cuba, but there food is shortages not, are quite common. Yeah, not always beef, 
Yeah. Not always seafood. They, in those expensive tourist areas, it's more likely you're going to get all of those things because they are spending the extra money to get it to there. Once you head out of old Havana, you might find menus half empty, like they don't have half of the dishes that they claim to have. So just something to be aware of. And the food quality isn't always going to be that good. We're not going to get into talking about state-run restaurants and independent restaurants. That's something you can read about in our Cuba articles on our blog, if you like. But it's not always easy to get a chef that actually cares about cooking good food because wages are terrible, the social situation is terrible, and the food quality and availability of products is not always to high standards you'd expect. Yeah, but we cover a lot of that in the article, so feel free to go and have a read about that before you head off to Cuba. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Don't forget to share the love, rate and review five stars if you like this show. If you don't like the show and you want to leave us less than five stars, maybe it's just not the show for you. So, you know, if you love it, let people know. If you don't love it, maybe find a podcast you do love because we want everyone who's listened to the show to love the show. Yeah, exactly. No point listening to a show that you half like. What's the point of that? Yeah. No, I don't do I, it. Ain't no one got time for it. that. No, no one's got time for that. And subscribe, of course, if you're not already subscribed. And get other people to subscribe. Please do it. Do it. It helps us out. It means we're going to make more episodes if we get more subscribers and the show becomes a big success. That's what we're after. All right. Don't forget to grab the show notes and all of the other Cuba content can be found on our blog. Foodfuntravel.com slash Cuba podcast is a good starting point to find that. All right. We'll see you next time. Or, you know, you'll hear us next time. We won't actually see you. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.